Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. We are also now a proud member of the Drum Click Podcast Network, a newly formed curation of shows solely dedicated to topics and conversations involving all things drum. Check out more at thedrumclick.com. And if you'd like, follow at the Drum Click on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All right, so this week's guest is Mark Juliana. There's so much to say, and if you're listening to this show, I assume you're already aware of the man, but still, he's a band leader for the group's Beat Music, the Mark Juliana Jazz Quartet, and Hirnt, in addition to being a key collaborator with artists such as Brad Meldow, Avishay Cohen, Dave Douglas, Modest Yahoo, Chris Morrissey, and the late, legendary David Bowie. Of course, the list goes on and on, but Mark's blend of jazz with electronic music continues to set him apart, and in this episode, we dive into the top five influences that shaped his playing style. I started off the show by picking a few songs from Mark's career and asked him to tell a little backstory surrounding each. This one meant a lot to me, and I hope you guys enjoy listening to Mark as much as I did. All right, cheers. That takes me to 2004, my parents' basement rehearsing that music. Um, the name of that record is Locked in a Basement, and uh, we were locked in my parents' basement for <laughs> <laughs> for days and days working on that music. And um, yeah, geez, that, that song is called Sea Urchin, Sea Urchin Run, and... Um, yeah, this, this here was kind of my first foray into being a band leader. It was, it was very democratic and very collaborative, but it was, um, I guess, you know, mine in quotes. And, um, so I just learned so much and, and really we were, it was such an innocent, uh, journey. We, we really didn't know any better. So all the decisions we made, were pretty blissfully ignorant and we weren't worried about um any business matters or it it was really uh, in a lot of ways I wish I could get back to that headspace you know cuz since then you realize there's all these other things that you should probably consider in your music making but it was really fun to just simply not be aware of those things and just make the exact noise that we wanted to make and then get it recorded and try to get people to hear it you know it's truly that simple so um you know i i'm very grateful for that experience and almost in some ways still use it as an example of art for art's sake you know in in my life well, that that beat you play at the beginning is such an example of of this podcast and and things I say at ad nauseum during each episode is those little choices because seemingly that that beat is a straightforward beat at the beginning, but what makes that cool to me and I'm sure a lot of people is that that delayed backbeat every other bar was that as deliberate as I think it was? Are you kind of just like, well, let's just it, I want to do something, and then just that's what that was the choice you made. 
I think it's it's hard to say about that one in particular, mostly just because of what I was saying, the the ignorance. It was like, oh, yeah, I'll just do this. Now, it was intentional, and obviously, like you're saying, for it to be become compositionally become the part, then, yes, it has to be quite intentional. But I'm sure, without remembering exactly, I'm sure I just kind of made that choice in the moment and then almost half kidding like oh what if that's the beat but then once you commit to it then it becomes you know fully intentional and becomes the the thing so i think the best versions of those um happen with great levity and happen with intuition rather than um a frustration with an existing part and trying to mess with it you know because i think that from that it, you you kind of yes you could land you could enter the same room but through quite a different door you know and sometimes that that more um like if you just think ah oh, this is kind of plain i want to mess it up there might not be much depth to that choice you know it it could just be a more surface level um you know i want people to you know wince a little every time that backbeat comes around like that's not what i was hoping to do it was just yeah it was definitely playful and um and after i started to do a little bit it it kind of started to appear as um you know a key element to the song for sure all right number two So I just want people to know, I probably cut it out, but I just played a song that Mark was not on right before this, and I want I, I want to I sit in that, and he was gracious enough to tell me right away, but this one I hope is you, and uh, yeah. This is me. I'm g- very grateful that it's me. Still, still actually kind of, uh, not to be sappy, but still at times have to pinch myself that it's me, actually, the... That's with Mr. Bowie, of course, and those experiences with him were life-changing, to say the least. So still uh, can't say enough great things about sharing music with him. Mm -hmm. But that one, the one you chose, is cool because that one, I think, gets talked about a little less. and, And that's... So that song was with Maria Schneider's orchestra, and... I think the story goes, or at least the way I understand it, is David was a big fan of her music. She's an incredible composer, arranger, living in New York, has had her band for a long time, and he was a fan, and he approached her and just said, hey, do you want to collaborate on some music? And this was the song that he brought to her. So he he had the bass line, and he had the melody, um, but it was pretty it was a skeletal version of the song so everything you hear with those orchestrations and what she did with the band is is her incredible mind 
And um, I guess there was something in that song that reminded her of me in some way. And uh, so she asked me to be a part of the recording. And yeah, we, we got to do a couple rehearsals. It was all in New York. We recorded at Avatar in Midtown and uh, did a few rehearsals where it was essentially the rhythm section and a couple horns and, and David and Tony Visconti was there. So, to, to, you know, to get to spend that time together was incredible. And then, um, yeah, what you hear is a, is a take, you know, and um, it's so that was the summer of 2014. And that came out on a like a greatest hits, like a career spanning greatest hits of his. And that was the one new song that was on there. And then after that experience, I think David wanted to keep working on more music with Maria, but she was doing her own stuff and she, it was her idea. She said, oh, you should just make a record with these guys. And that that she was referring to Donnie McCaslin's band, which I was a part of. Donnie had been in Maria's band forever. So that's Jason Lindner and, and Tim LaFave as well. So that's what led to Black Star. I don't know where I heard it, but it, maybe it's folklore. But I, I the first time I heard how you hooked up with Bowie was that you were playing at 55 Bar and he just walked in and was in the background and saw you. Is that a, a kind of a side story that lines up with the other one? or? Yes. So Maria brought him to see us at the 55 Bar. Oh, okay. Um, so... We didn't meet him that night, um, but that was in advance. Once Maria had the idea for this song that you just played, he wanted to check us out, and then and then that led to hearing um, hearing that show. So it was again, we didn't meet him, but to look out the corner of my eye and see him <laughs> with a little kangol on and sitting at a table, no one no one knowing who he is, it was pretty wild. I was going to say, at 55 Bar, it's hard to not see everyone in there So from stage looking at the audience. Totally. Totally. Did you... I mean, are you so such a veteran in, in your craft and confident in yourself as a musician that that didn't mess you up? Or is that still a little bit of a pinch yourself? Like, okay, now I have to play the same way I was before knowing David Bowie was looking at me. Mm. Um, I think with that music... With improvised music, um, the only thing you can do is just dive even deeper into the music. You know, mm. I, I think the the way the, the perspective I have in an improvised situation is the only thing that can go wrong is that you're not present and you're not actually there making choices unique to that moment. Mm -hmm. So it's much less about um, things actually going wrong in the music, you know, like it's maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I really like to think like you just can't nothing can go wrong in the music. There's no such thing as a mistake and all that. So the only thing that could go wrong is that you remove yourself from that moment. So it's more of a perspective than it is a musical detail thing. So in those moments, I usually just try to really engross myself in that moment and almost hide inside the music and then that way i'm protected sure it's it's when you and and this is very natural and common um and sometimes difficult to resist but it's when you you know 
potentially make it about you or in your mind you're like oh this guy's here i want to show him what i can do mm-hmm. you know that's when things can go wrong you're you're in in essence like turning your back to the music and then you're you become vulnerable <laughs> ironically you know yeah um but i just think about it like i'm just just dealing with the music and um that's you know hopefully that's when good things can happen sure well let's move on to the the second version of the song because um then on the on the album black star he then wanted a different kind of perspective on the song so i want to play that version of it which is it you on that one too it is yes (laughs) i'm gonna gonna ask before every time now all right so this is the same song um i'm assuming two or three two two two-ish years later uh that ended up on the black star album especially because you're going a little more um you know intensely on the drums and then his his voice is still so just subdued and somber that juxtaposition is such a is is really really cool totally i i think um like you're saying this is this was unique in the sense that the song already had been recorded whereas everything else on black star was new and and had demos that david made just kind of rough rough stuff that he would make at home um so he very specifically said he wanted kind of what you're saying just a little more intensity from this version to to essentially to warrant recording it again um so i think we made it a little faster i would have to click out those tempos to be sure but Wanna wanna say it was a little faster, which helped, and then we just kind of started at eight, and eventually got to ten over the course of three, four, five minutes, you know. Um, and this is a good example of because he came to see us at the fifty-five bar, he kind of saw us in our natural element, really going for it, taking chances. So he would reference that several times throughout the the sessions of. Sometimes maybe we would do a take and of a of some particular song, and we were kind of being responsible and playing what we thought would be appropriate in sure. a professional situation, you know. And we certainly didn't want to assume that every song was an opportunity to freak out, you know. But on several occasions, like I remember him saying, like. Mark, I know what you're capable of, you know, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, or like, okay, that was cool, but now let's really do it. You know, those kinds of things. And, uh, that definitely led to the place where we got the performances that we got and, and everything was a take from start to finish. And he was always singing with us in every, every take in the same room. So not, and not in a booth. So it's pretty wild. He's just singing out in the room where the cymbals are ringing and the this and that. So that um, 
was certainly not the way I assumed we'd be making the record, but it completely, it has so much to do with how, um, again, the performances landed where they landed. It was, it was, it felt like a band, you know? Sure. Um, so I hope that is heard and felt, you know, through the speakers. How has that helped you? Cause I know a lot of, uh, beat music is through composed by you. How has that, his perspective helped you as a band leader in kind of letting people do their own thing? Yeah. So, um, he embodied two things that are seemingly contradictory and I've been around people that, that possess one of these things, you know, like for example, I've been around people who have, uh, an incredibly clear vision of what they want. Um, but, coupled with that vision they're it's kind of contained and they're not really open to other people's ideas because they have their vision which is great i love that's totally cool to be in those situations um and then i've been around people that um are incredibly open to other people's ideas but maybe it's because they don't have a very strong singular idea themselves which is also great totally cool he managed to have both of those things, which um, I'm still in awe of, you know, the the record that you hear, he heard in his mind every detail of it long before we started. So the vision was incredibly clear, yet at the same time, he was incredibly open to our ideas, and it felt like a very democratic situation, and he was always inviting us to try stuff, take chances, add things if we think it would fit, so... Um, yeah, I think, again, seemingly contradictory, but somehow he really had both those things. Was he super particular with drum sounds on each song? No. No, it was more about an energy, you know, and again, the demos did a lot of the talking. They were very rough, like mostly program stuff or things were looped, samples. Mm -hmm. So, um... And quite often the stuff on the demos were kind of impossible to pull off in real time because it might just be two loops smashed on top of each other or program yeah. things. And mm-hmm. So my goal was to just try to interpret what was there, just play what was on the demo to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases it required some interpretation just because it wouldn't be possible, but in general, I think the energy and the sounds on the demo um, did the talking. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read, this isn't one of the official Instagram questions, but someone did say that your snare drum sound on the song Black Star, the album's called Black Star, but the al- there's also a song called Black Star, that's what made them get a big fat snare drum, which I know you're not playing a big fat snare drum on that, but uh, just so you know, they love that snare sound, and uh, they're trying to give us credit for it. But <laughs> Well, well, what I would also give you guys credit for it, although I'm not on the song because I, I dedicated a drum to that sound. To get that sound quite often, without a big fat snare drum, quite often you have to kind of dedicate a drum to that yeah uh, very particular head it was like a two-ply head which i never use on a snare drum way down and a bunch of paper towels taped in different places you know so um and i'm not a guy that has a bunch of gear and stuff you know i might have 
two snare drums at hand, but um, rarely would I have the luxury of committing a snare drum to that sound and then swap it in and out. So um, that's where a big fat snare drum would absolutely come in handy for the the uh, expedited process of achieving that sound for sure. So I could imagine maybe in a live situation if I didn't have the luxury of swapping things out, um, yeah, throw a big fat snare drum on whatever other snare drum sound is more of a quote main sound and then that'll get you there much faster than than another drum. Well, we can't get a better endorsement than that. So thank you, man. Um, yeah, all good. I want to play the next one, and again, this is the one where I, I hope it's you. This sounds like you, uh, and then we'll just go from there. Yeah, so that's um, that's Matt Cameron's solo record, Cave Dweller, mm-hmm. which, uh, frankly, I also have to pinch myself that I'm playing on that one. It yeah. makes zero sense in my brain that I'm playing drums on a Matt, Cal- <laughs> Matt Cameron album. Yeah, truly one of my heroes and one of the one of my earliest heroes. Um, I started playing drums in 1995, so if you turn on MTV, then when I started playing drums or on the radio, within a few songs, you're going to hear Matt Cameron. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it's just, uh, we we actually connected, um, after Blackstar came out, he sent me a message or he he wrote a comment on Facebook or something, and I saw it, and I was like, well, clearly there has to be more than one Matt Cameron <laughs> sure, yeah, in the this. world. Yeah. Um, so we connected, and shortly thereafter, he said he was working on his own music and asked me to record. So I said yes. <laughs> and then that, led, that has led to a great friendship, uh, which I feel like is equally, if not more important, than, than the musical relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but what an honor to to play on his record it, for me especially compositionally he's really one of my favorite compositional drummers I feel like his parts are just so thoughtful and unique to him and yeah powerful um, so when he sent me a lot of these demos he didn't specifically ask me to play exactly what was on the demo but I had a really hard time not trying to just figure out exactly what he had programmed because I sure. have such respect for for that. Um, but yeah, it was pretty strange to be in the live room tracking and finish a take, and he's giving me thumbs up from the control room. Like, why aren't you in here? <laughs> yeah, this you is yeah, this feels <laughs> weird. Yeah, 
Um, but what a like I don't know if you've ever met him, but just the nicest guy. I have not. And um, yeah, just incredible. Grateful to call him a friend. Did you record that in his place up in uh, the Northwest? We were. He came to New York actually, so a okay. lot of. Um, Almost everything I've recorded of my own for the last seven, eight years is at a place called The Bunker in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Okay. Um, beautiful studio, and, and it could, you could kind of do anything in there. So I've done my jazz quartet stuff. We did beat music. We did the Meliana album with Brad Meldow. So if anyone ever asks, I always recommend The Bunker. So Matt, actually Matt was in town with temple of the dog oh okay um they played at the garden the night before and then we recorded some of this so it was when he was passing through town and then i think he maybe made a dedicated trip to finish it up as well but yeah we did that in brooklyn are you i i almost chose the song unnecessary but i, I in my head i'm like that's probably matt playing can you hit play and i'll let you yeah. know That's me doing my best Matt Cameron oh. impression. <laughs> well, no, I, I love the, the groove, and it was just like, okay, but that is that is a little more in the Matt, and then I read that he did play drums on a few of the songs, mm-hmm. but again, it's not as detailed, and I didn't want to you know, do another weak fiasco. No, so. no, no. Uh, no, that one is, again, that's me just trying to cop what's, what's on the demo, which everything was programmed, you know, but mm-hmm. that one definitely... Do you mind playing that a little bit of that of from c- the top? Of course, man. So cool. Yeah, I've yeah. listened to that record in a little bit. I mean, to me, that's a f- fucking Soundgarden song. And the reason that's a Soundgarden song is because he wrote a lot of them. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, well, that makes perfect sense. Um, but yeah, like the things that I hear are those little different hi-hat openings. Mm-hmm. D- wouldn't wouldn't be necessarily completely intuitive to me. So that it's definitely the more, maybe more those little details that I can tell. I'd have to reference the demo again, but it's like, okay, those small choices, I'm definitely making sure I'm grabbing from the demo in honor of his parts, you know? Well, I mean, you saying you're trying to do your best impression, I literally thought it was Matt Cameron, so I think, uh, <laughs> there you go, you nailed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so I do have a few Instagram questions uh, to be a total hypocrite and ask you uh, things you probably answered on other podcasts, but we'll just, uh, we'll do it regardless. So... Um, this is from Ryanardo, who's a very creative drummer uh, on Instagram. It's at Ryanardo1. He says, uh, what did finding your voice on the kit mean as you progressed as a musician? Hmm. Let's see. Over time, it has become less and less intentional. And I think that has yielded the most honest results. So, and what I mean by that is at first... Well, I think finding your voice sometimes gets wrongfully interpreted as being unique. 
Mm-hmm. And I know that's what I thought it meant when I was younger. Oh, I need to be unique. And that can be a very misleading path and a very distracting path because then you say, even if something does feel like you, if it isn't unique, you feel like you need to make it unique. And this is kind of referring back to what we were saying, then uh, that might lead you to some surface choices that take you away from yourself rather than learning more about who you are. So I think, um, I guess one of the main things I can isolate is allowing all of my influences to coexist in a way that's unique to me. Um, Again, when I was younger, I thought if I went to a jazz gig, I need to try to play like Max Roach. Or if I went to a rock gig, I need to try to play like Matt Cameron, you know. And that's a great starting point. Emulation and inspiration from your heroes is very important. But what was bad about that was when I went to my jazz gig to play like Max Roach, I was leaving my Matt Cameron influence at home. And therefore, I was not being myself. Mm. And if I went to the rock gig to play like Matt Cameron and I left my Max Roach influence at home, I'm no longer me. So the fact that there's Max Roach in there, there's Matt Cameron in there, I'm sure we'll get into many more influences in the conversation. Um, My whole thing was I want to have all of that at my disposal when I'm playing and hopefully truly represent all of the things that have influenced me and brought me to that moment. And I think that's what makes someone who they are. And um, it's less about uniqueness and just more about an honest representation of your influences and your experience. I love that perspective, and it is the correct perspective, I'll just say objectively, because I... It's something I grapple with all the time, and I've made a joke on this podcast and with friends before where sometimes if I'm in a certain situation, I wish I could have that men in black little pen where you're like, I wish I could just get rid of my instincts from 2001 to 2005 and then just, it's, it's, I wish I could erase that sometimes, but you're saying just, just lean in, use it. Yeah, exactly. Lean in. Yeah, because, um, I used to think like when I went to jazz school, I thought, I can't let anyone here know I like Nirvana or else they're going <laughs> to laugh at me and not want to play with me, you sure. know? And um, so at that point, Nirvana, Soundgarden, the guys we're talking about, that was maybe 60% of who I was as a musician walking into jazz school. So, you know, I think playing with 40% of your, uh, you know, capabilities is far worse than 100% even if it isn't the, quote, right stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you just want to bring your whole self to it. And then, of course, hopefully, um, you're, gonna, you're only going to make the choices that are right for that music. You're not, you don't want to force these influences in, but you do want to represent them. I love that. And I'm actually just going to let the conversation flow in the proper way. So we do have other questions, but you mentioned Nirvana. So let's actually just hop into your first number one, which is uh, I gave you some prompts and you just went along with them. And so the first one was a specific groove that completely changed the way you think about drums. And you chose Scentless Apprentice, which is, I mean, one of the best. So let me just play that intro real quick and then we can talk about it.
that's it right there. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just move on. <laughs> um, I just love. I love when you can identify a song by the drum beat. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, this one's. It starts with the drums, so maybe that helps us identify it. But I still think, even if the drums didn't start, that beat that beat is as hooky as the hook to mm-hmm. me. And it's played... I mean, it's played with such conviction. <laughs> yeah, I don't... I feel even silly describing <laughs> Dave Grohl's <laughs> drumming. It's yeah, a, I know. Very well documented. It's... it's uh, absolutely incredible truly Mm -hmm. truly incredible that sound and that energy that he could produce and um yeah i just love the part it's so mean it's Mm -hmm. so mean and then the guitar riff essentially is just playing the drum beat do 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 you know you're like well there you go that's just reinforcing this this great part so um but the sound of the record also you know the time 1993 i wasn't even playing drums yet but that i knew you hear that and you're like okay there's something going on here um so when i did start sitting down at the drums it was this kind of stuff that i was playing and um this is a good example of because looking back i didn't realize it in the moment but looking back there's something to be said about being able to play a Nirvana song and I play, I use play in a very, very loose way, being able to play through, play along to a Nirvana song, you know, a few months into learning how to play drums within Mm -hmm. six months of playing drums, you could probably learn this beat and get yourself through the song. Now I was light years away from, uh, you know, achieving this kind of energy or whatever feeling, but, it was so empowering as a teenager to put on, put this record on and play along to it and think to myself, yeah, I'm playing a lot. I'm, I'm in Nirvana right now, you know? And, uh, you know, later in my path, I got into jazz and things like that and into some music that, you know, certainly you could not put on and play along to um with that little relationship with the drums you know so it really is empowering but it also speaks to like yes if you could teach someone this beat and they can play it um so on the page you are playing the same thing as dave Grohl, but then you realize oh wow you know there's so much more that he is embodying that gets it to the place that we're hearing it you know and that's that's kind of the lifelong path. It's uh, yeah, Dave's Dave's the best. You're right. It is well documented, but it uh, it still. If we can make one person go, oh, I don't, I don't, I only know. Never mind. I've never heard in utero. Or, or that I think one's it is fair good. to say more and more the the every day that passes since Nirvana was a working band. Maybe people. I'm sure there are people in the world that don't know that know Dave Grohl and don't know he plays drums. Mm-hmm. It sounds absurd to say that, yeah. but it has to be true, right? He's the cool the cool guy with the long hair that sings in that other band, you know, and they like some of those songs. Well, so and I there, think, it, it, yeah, ahead, at sorry. the very least, I don't think it'll be on this 
I don't think it, the target market for this podcast, <laughs> so, you know, I think everybody knows, but you're right. It can't hurt to remind people how amazing a drummer he is. Yeah, I think I'm sure you've seen the meme where it's it's uh, side by side. They're like, if the lead singer of the Foo Fighters shaved his beard, he'd look a lot like the drummer mm-hmm. for Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, all right, yeah, I, I I love that you chose this because similar to Ash Soane, there was some some earlier stuff that he did that people don't associate his influences in that way. Because uh, obviously, when I think of you, I don't immediately think of nirvana so Mm -hmm. it's uh it gives hope for people like me that i grew up i'm a little younger than you i'm 34 and i grew up on southern california punk rock and if you can shed that and be associated with a different kind of music then there's still hope for me Mm -hmm. so but like we're saying we're not trying to shed it you're right Right? i know there you go (laughs) (laughs) this is why you're you and i'm me so Hey, y'all, I wanted to, (laughs) I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud. And it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour. And I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye uh, all right, so number two, a performance which you either played or witnessed that altered your musical course. Mm-hmm. And um, Osain Del Monte, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Osain Del Monte, yeah. All right. So Osain Del Monte is a rumba group in Cuba, Havana, and um, the leader is Adonis Panter. So he's um, often acting a bit more as a band leader, but he's an incredible conga player. And so every now and then he'll sit down to remind you of that. 
and um, but you can notice him kind of conducting, bring, bringing elements in and out, singing, dancing, all of this. And um, I've had the chance to go down to Havana a couple times in the last couple years. I was invited by Aldo Maza, who runs um, this camp called COSA. It's kind of an organization in a camp. And um, yeah, getting to go down there completely changed my life and and uh getting to hear this music and meet these musicians and hang out with them it was really um put lots of things in perspective you know i were i I guess they're technically in the western world but i don't think of it as the i think of the u.s as the west in that in that way and um you know it just music feels a lot more formalized in the sense that you step on stage and when you're playing you're a musician and then you get off stage and you're a guy you know who plays music sometimes but down there it just felt like every moment of every day is an opportunity to be making music and be creative and um you know you're hanging out standing around talking and then someone starts tapping a rhythm on their chest and someone starts singing and now we're just in it you know and for me usually there's a bit more of a you know a switch that needs to okay now it's time and now it isn't time and uh being immersed in that culture really inspired me to try to make that more of a fluent transition or not a transition at all it's just always on you know um and this band in particular, the second time I was down there, some friends of mine brought me to hear them. It was very late, you know, kind of in a nightclub. And uh, hands down, you know, top three live performances I've seen. And I, I don't even have the other two in mind. But I'm just saying top three just to be safe. Um, just to leave some room. It really... Uh, I've never experienced something like that and there was you know a little bit of rum involved but not not too much where i would be second guessing my my memory sure. um it's so the the in in rumba it's you know percussion and voice really and dance um and yeah i don't i don't know what to say you know i i i will say um it just felt like the it, uh, it's dangerous cuz it could really get into kind of cliche things but it felt like the most embodied musical experience i've ever seen it just felt so connected to whatever there is to connect to you know (laughs) um i've been to uh, i'm very lucky i've gotten to travel to many places and seen a lot of things and i've been to africa i've been to um all along north africa like Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria and Egypt. And I've also been to South Africa. Um, But I will say that night in Havana watching these guys play was, that felt like the closest I've been to true like West African, you know, birthplace of rhythm, you know? That's awesome. Um, So it's, it's interesting that, it was actually in Havana that I felt most connected to the source. It really felt like, in the best way, some of the 
oldest music I've ever witnessed. Even though it's highly progressive and highly uh, explorative and modern in all those ways, it actually felt the most rooted um, that I've heard. So, um, again, I feel like a total tourist when I'm listening and when I, when I try to wade into those waters a little bit, but I've been really uh, listening as much as I can and just trying to absorb the essence of, of the way they play. Has that been a big influence on, on recently and on Instagram? I've seen you play with a bunch of, uh, I mean, I'm so a novice when it comes to world drums, if that's even the correct term. Um, but you know, there's, you have some videos of you not playing on a drum set. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what, what drums are those? And is that in any way associated with that experience? I guess it could be associated. Yeah. Just the, the pursuit of, um, non-drum set sounds mm -hmm. for sure uh these drums are like mini dundun drums from west africa there's there's a shop here in los angeles called motherland music have you been mm -hmm. there no but i i have heard of it yeah okay when we're done just get in the car and go <laughs> okay. it's uh really um an incredible place and just from a few simple purchases from there it's really provided so much inspiration and um yeah it's these these are not traditional in the sense that they're much smaller than they would be used in a folkloric sense but they have great relationships with the instrument makers all throughout west africa and um, sometimes they'll collaborate on a slightly different design mm -hmm. um, but yeah the easy answer would be dundunes okay cool yeah um, well, I will drop this video, guys, in the show notes, the actual uh, YouTube video that we just watched. But I'll, I'll also try and find, as always, there's a Spotify playlist of all the songs I play. So I'll try and put some of the, their stuff in there if it's available. It is, yes. Sweet. All right. Well, I'll put a few songs on there so you guys can go down those that rabbit hole. But uh, number three, your favorite drummer and how their overall body of work has affected you. And I know this is always a big ask, but uh, you, of course, said Elvin Jones. Um, and you said, to quote you, so much to cover, but this is a good place to start. And you sent me the, the drum thing from John Coltrane uh, Quartet's Crescent album from 1964. So let's just go ahead and play. Um, I'm trying to think if i put a little spot where i should start let's just jump in in the middle and see All what right. happens It's difficult to summarize his his impact, not just on me, but I think on drumming. I really think there's kind of, at least in jazz, there's drum set playing before Elvin, and then there's drum set playing after Elvin, for mm -hmm. sure. it's You'd be really hard-pressed to find someone in that world that today that he doesn't have a really big influence on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know what to say, really. It's uh, his, specifically his work, you know, the records he made with John Coltrane are biblical, you know? <laughs> and um, I, I return to those very often, and they still provide so many um, new surprises every listen. Um, and yeah, just the connection they had. We obviously didn't get to hear Train play it all then, but it, it they were such a good team, mm-hmm. you know. And I really, you know, another huge parallel influence is Bob Marley and his music, and and um, maybe John Coltrane and Bob Marley are the two guys I've really listened to the most. And um, obviously Carlton Barrett. It's 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 a less interactive relationship. Mm-hmm. But I really think, um, you know, the way they complement each other is is so, is, it's just it, you know. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> but yeah, Elvin with Train, of course, he, he's been a part of so many other records, so many landmark records. And of course, his own recordings and his own music. Um, but this is, yeah, 1964, that's a real sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, for this band and this was the record Crescent is the record just before Love Supreme which is probably um, what most people have heard if they've only heard one record of this band it's usually a Love Supreme so I always try to like I, I always like to try to um, investigate the timeline a bit and see okay this record changed my life what was the one just before it or just after it or mm-hmm. what were they doing as a sideman in between um and especially in the jazz world these guys were making so many records around that time that there's it's really nice to dive into that and really know who's on the records and who else they're playing with and try to get that spider web in my mind um but yeah it's um I'll say this one little anecdote. Um, I'm very lucky to have a, a, a great relationship with Vic Firth, and and um, I say this very humbly, but I haven't had to pay for drumsticks in a while, thanks to them. Thank you, Vic Firth. However, I the most recent pair of drumsticks that I bought were um, Elvin Jones used <laughs> used and authenticated sticks. It's uh, it's kind of funny that um you know I hadn't bought drumsticks in a f- in in a while and then I spent like $200 on a pair of drumsticks but Sh- I said yeah. you know what got to make up for it if these have if these have his DNA on there and maybe I could just get a little bit of that mojo it's it's worth it yeah what uh, what brand were they also Vic Firth or are you not going to no, say the brand no 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 they're they're Gretsch 6 D or something like 6B so whatever that uh, <laughs> specific model that. means but um, yeah I guess he was playing them maybe in the 70s or something but um, yeah there's some Elvin uh, stuff floating out there in the in the ether so I thought I can't afford like a $5,000 symbol but a pair of drumsticks that'll that'll do the trick have you played with them or is it like just strictly pad stuff no, no, no. I won't. They're they're in a little case, and okay. every now and then I just caress them. You sure. Know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell it a bedtime story and exactly. see you tomorrow. 
<laughs> it's like, you know, the, the Ken Griffey Jr. game used bat or something. You know, you're not going to totally. bring it to the batting cages, but you look over there and you notice it and it fills you with many memories, you know. Sure. All right. Sorry to move on from, from him, but let's go to All number good. four. Uh, a record that just hit you at the right time in your life and represents a big part of your artistry. And this is a this is a, a an artist that I want to get into more. Um, I have for a while, but it's Square Pusher, and the albums feed me weird things. So I just chose Square Pusher theme. I relate this to electronic music for me has been a big influence and um, as large an influence as any other style. And it reminds me of when I first got into jazz or was like introduced to jazz before I intentionally went down that path. It was like whether it was Elvin with John Coltrane or Tony Williams with Miles, it was I didn't know what the fuck was going on in my mind but there was something in my body in my gut telling me that this was important and i needed to find out basically for in so many words and that's me again looking back being able to say that but for sure it was i couldn't say i understood it in my brain but there was something in my body that i knew i needed to listen to and chase down um because it was creating a feeling that I hadn't really experienced before, or very rarely experienced. Um, and then that's what led me down. You know, after I heard this record, a friend of mine gave me this record in college on a burned CD. I still, like, remember his his handwriting on this CD, you know. Spent, oh, yeah. Uh, spent so much time with it, and um, then I just went and bought every Square Pusher record that I could find uh, still to this day. And... Um, yeah, so the guy's name is Tom Jenkinson, and he's a bass player. There are some records where he plays drums, um, but it's usually more cut up and chopped up like, like we just heard. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just masterful. And, again, it's, it's more so, yes, there's a lot to grab onto um, intellectually, but for me it's more about... Um, the feeling it it gave me in my body and and really it's it's so important to try not to remove these things from their environment i think you know it's quite often when you start to analyze music one of the first things we do is 
rip it out of its environment and then start to pick it apart. So, and that's completely unfair. You could say, you know, we were talking about the way Dave Grohl plays. It's like, that's, that's 1993 in the U S and based on his life experience, that's just when he sits down, that's what happens based Mm -hmm. on what he's dealing with, you know, sleeping on floors and, being in the van i mean maybe not maybe they were on a jet by the time in utero came out who knows but yeah maybe. Um, but it's uh and then osain del monte i mean that is uh, obviously there's lots of documentation of what life is like in living in cuba and those hardships and music as a, a way of expressing those things and um who else did we have we had john coltrane you know, it's like 1964, what's going on with race relationships in the country and this, all these things are simply, not only are they a part of the music, they are the music as much as the note choices or the rhythmic choices. It's all of this stuff is in there. So this music, mid nineties in the UK, it's coming out of this party culture and this dance culture. Um, so it's, I would love to have a chat with Tom if I could and ask him, but I imagine he's coming more from that side than rather than the intellectualized side that we tend to, you know, look at it from in a more analytical way. But it's, this is music that to be played in a club for people to dance to, you know, um, and potentially in a mind altered state you know that you can't remove that from a lot of the music we love too the the way it arrived where it the the way in which it arrived but anyway that's a slight digression but i do think this is dance music um it's heavily manipulated and you might need to be a little bit crazy to dance to it but it's still coming from that place same with jazz jazz started as dance music as popular music and then over time it you know took many different um paths but yeah this is and then of course the rhythmic i mean the rhythmic inventions and sonic choices and because it isn't a drummer playing this stuff in real time it's really fun to try to pull it off and learn from it and inevitably you'll fail because you probably can't pull it off in real time but where you land you might land in a new interesting place i will say square pusher has a live band called show Believer one where it's a quartet guitar keys square pushers playing bass and drums and they play these songs live wow okay and the drummer is adam betts and um he is uh a good friend but also uh an absolute monster he lives he lives in london and um you could look up show leader one and they actually they play this song so there's a live footage of this song and you'll hear that he's getting as close as anybody i've ever heard get to this sound and the feeling and the articulation sonic choices truly stunning so please check out adam betts and his solo project is called colossal squid so (laughs) i love that (laughs) big big shout out to adam for sure so i know you i know you've talked about 
you know, since you have a family and you are more more picky on 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 going out on the road, if 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 Showbleeder One wanted you to go out for for a few weeks, would that be a band you'd be like, oh, absolutely yes, right away? I would go and watch them for a few weeks. <laughs> I could not be in that band. Are you crazy? No, the, when you see it, you're like, I I can't play that way. I would love okay. to, but um, I would go on tour as a fan. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <okay. laughs> Sit next to Adam every yeah, night. Yeah, the weekly Definitely. pay is probably not the same. But exactly. Yeah. I'll, I'll get the beers and just hang out. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'd be sweet. I mean, if you could, uh, separate from the live band, but have a collaboration with him. A oh, Square yeah. Pusher Mark album. I mean, just to have a chat. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've, I've asked a couple questions via Adam to him that he's mm. that i've gotten some info from but he seems like a very um lovely guy but also rather private so sure yeah all right well number five it's the the sound of a particular record that helped you uh, mold your tuning style and you said roy haynes on the record uh out of the afternoon from 1962 uh, again around that sweet spot of elvin that early 60s jazz scene um, and I just chose Snap Crackle. I'm glad um, I was going to say yeah. that. I would recommend that. Sure. Roy. Haynes. So it's in the same room as the John Coltrane record we heard. That's, oh, wow. that's Van Gelder Studios in New Jersey. Um, and a lot of... The, this is on Impulse, and so was the train record that was Impulse. But a lot of those classic Blue Note records that everybody knows were in this room. And... Um, is it still around? It's still around. Yeah. Cool. I, I, uh, every now and then, you'll see some events. I know when one of the more recent Coltrane records came out that they called like the lost album. They did like a listening event there with Robbie Coltrane hosting a Q and a and things like that. So cool. I've never been, I, 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 I need to make a visit, but um, yeah, that, that intro to me, that's just, it's my favorite room sound mm-hmm. that I've ever heard. And, and I, and I wanted to make sure, um, to include something quite acoustic because um or just to have a bit of variety but obviously that's not a sound that i would go for on black star you know but um in a more acoustic jazz setting that to me is the the north star you know and i just feel like i'm in the room with those drums you know the way they documented it it sounds quite different than the elvin that we heard mm-hmm. um or if you listen to a love supreme there's a little bit of the a little bit less room in there but there's something about the way roy plays with such great articulation and great clarity that it lends itself to allowing more of the room into the picture without it getting mm-hmm. too blurry you know so i've definitely used for my jazz quartet records i've definitely referenced this sound um and again we did those at the bunker the same place we did matt's record and um they have some kind of modular walls there so you could be closed off or it could be more open so we were going for the more open thing and 
trying to use that um, to our advantage. But um, yeah, Roy for me is uh, on the short list of, you know, it's Elvin and Tony and Roy and Art Blakey and Jack DeJanet and those kind of guys are um, the more jazz heroes, you know, but um, Mm -hmm. this record really stands out uh, for these sonic purposes. So when you, when you mentioned that it came to mind right away. Yeah. That record, uh, you can like the, the, the close mics and the room mics are, they're in their own little world and you, you're allowed to focus on each one separately if, if you choose to, cause it's, it's not a delay, but you can, you can see the, the separation between them. It's, it's whatever they did sounds awesome. Yeah. And obviously the room has some magic in it and to, to take advantage of that, but also it just feels like, a. again, you're just, you're in that room with them, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe can you just jump to the middle a couple minutes in and hit play and we'll hear how it sounds with everybody playing. Of course. Sean Roland Kirk playing flute who's that's amazing yeah yeah he's he's oh man incredible but yeah it just feels like a, a it's a clear photograph but with great character of uh, sonic sonically you know yeah. um and you can almost I mean you can you know look up Van Gelder studio online and see some photos but uh, for for anyone who hasn't seen what that room looks like, I encourage you to kind of close your eyes and imagine the space because I think the space is captured so nicely. Mm-hmm. And then you can go check to see if your instincts are are right. You know, have you? Because uh, I, I I know you live on the West Coast now, but did you get a chance to see Roy at? Because like, he still plays the Blue Note, right? He does. Yeah, I haven't seen him in the last handful of years, but. Um, I yeah, I remember being at the North Sea Jazz Festival in maybe 2005, and thinking Roy was playing and some kind of non-jazz that maybe Common or somebody like that was playing. I was like, oh, Common's cool. I might want to go to that. I was like, well, but I gotta go see Roy. Who knows if this is gonna you know when <laughs> the next time? And that's 16 years ago. You know, yeah, so, he's 96, 97 right now. So I've been making that choice ever since um Mm -hmm. and still playing great yeah i guess the last time i saw him there was this benefit kind of a fundraiser for obama actually his for obama's second term um in new york that was like a real heavy lineup and roy was a part of that so i went to this so that's a while ago now um but yeah i gotta try to track him down again totally amazing jazz keeps you young i I mean i mean i say that jokingly but the spirit of jazz and just letting things happen and living in the moment i mean there's a lot of things that i'm sure actually has allowed him to live to his uh golden years totally totally mark juliana um thanks for being on the show you guys can go check him out as a fan on the show bleeder one tour 
announcing soon. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if people, I don't want to force you to do self-promotion. If people, if, if you want to check out what Mark's done, uh, what he's releasing, what he's doing, um, go, go check him out. Um, just Google Mark Juliana. There's a million things that come up, and he's done a lot. So um, thanks for being the show, man, and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to connect. Yeah, I'm grateful for you guys, and, and uh, yeah, hope to connect soon. Yeah, man. All right, dude. Have cool. a good one. All right. Thank you. Bye. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe, and if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, Anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Bye.